Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. This episode, Cabby Lake goes under the knife with the Rocket 88 deleting tool, and we discuss whether or not gaming hardware needs to grow up. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia, and with me today, I have Darren McKay. Dennis, over the last weekend, I couldn't help but notice that you had put out a little bit of a social presence on Twitter. Mm-hmm. that you were doing something that I've never done in all my years as a hardware enthusiast, and that was delitting a processor. Yeah, I was ripping the top off of that thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought it might be fun to talk about that a little bit because not only were you doing delitting, which is kind of a mystery to me, honestly, but you were using kind of a cool tool that I'd never seen before also. I got a Rocket 88 delitting tool from Rocket Cool, which is a U.S.-based manufacturer, and this is really the only thing that they make. And I've done delitting before, and this is something we talked about in episode 31 of the Hardware Asylum podcast, which I think it was the Ninja Lane podcast back then, where I took my old Haswell 4770K, and I took a razor blade and ripped the top off to go and change the thermal compound. Folks at home can't see the grimace that I made when he talked about that like it was such a not a big deal. <laughs> I've just uh, I've always been resistant to delitting as a process. One because uh, it seems like sometimes the results are just kind of not there, mm-hmm. and the risk just seems like it's so great. So to see a tool that actually helps you with that was kind of clever. So uh, anyway, uh, we've got it here. Yeah, the I'd, Rocket eighty eight tool. I've never seen a tool like this, and I've been like I say an enthusiast and overclocker for a long time. So where did you find this thing? Well, when I was publishing the Z270 Classified K motherboard review, part of that review was putting the 7700K, the Cabby Lake processor I have, under the face. And I ran it up to 5.6 gigahertz at 1.46 volts. Not bad. Not bad at all. And I noticed that the temperature would rise above zero when it was running load tests. And that seems weird since the phase head was at negative 50C, give or take. That's a huge swing. Yeah, and having it come up from zero. So that means that there was a lot of extra heat that was not being removed by the phase head. Thinking back, I had my 2600K running on the same phase at 5.7 gigahertz. And the amount of heat that that processor would put off would collapse the phase, which would cause the phase head to heat up to the point where it couldn't keep up. Oh, wow. So there is a big difference between Sandy Bridge, the old Sandy Bridge, and these new processors because of the way that Intel has attached the heat spreader to the printed board that the silicon sits on. Oh, that's very impressive. But taking the lid off seems kind of extreme. Why wouldn't Intel design around that kind of process? I have a couple of theories. One of them is cost. Obviously, if you put just some thermal compound, which is, you know, the same stuff that manufacturers use on a GPU, for instance, you know, that gray pasty stuff. It's the same paste that uh, Cooler Master includes with all of their heat sinks. It just is. Gotta have it. It's inexpensive. It's widely available. It allows Intel to pretty much smash all of these chips together, have uh, less failures. And in a way, it also regulates how much you can overclock the chips, so to speak. Ah, okay. So... They've kind of gone to the lowest common denominator, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the chips will run up to a certain temperature, and then that's well within the operating range of the chip. And it's something that they can calculate. And obviously, it's not going to cause a problem unless you are extreme overclocking, like 
what I want to do with the phase or liquid nitrogen, for instance. I got to tell you, Dennis, it still sounds like pretty risky behavior. I mean, the Intel folks must know what they're talking about, right? Yeah, they do. And admittedly with Ivy Bridge and Haswell, the board was a lot thicker. So you see, uh, you know, what we talked about in episode 31 was a lot of the deleting that people did was put the chip in a vice and then hit the top, you know, the metal heat spreader with a board and a hammer to knock the top off. Well, that would also, you know, if you had it crooked in the vice, you could smash your processor, which is something that people had done. But the the board was pretty resilient. That's one reason I could use a razor blade. It's not going to bend. Well, when Skylight came out, Intel made that board extremely thin and is physically flexible. You know, I put a chip in crooked once because they put the notches up at the corner. So it was really hard to tell. Put it in crooked, latched it down, and I broke two of the corners because oh, I put it in. No. And that's not something that would have happened with Haswell because of the way that it was, the chip was designed. But with Skylake and now Cabby Lake, they've gone with this new thinner board, also a cost savings. You don't need something thick like that. But it's also made delitting a lot more dangerous. You know, you can't use that board technique anymore. It's really dangerous to use the razor blade because at that point you're going to be bending that PCB because the metal piece isn't going to bend, but you have the thickness of the razor and you manhandling it, trying to get it separated. Right, right. So that's where a delitting tool like the Rocket 88 comes in handy. So what you do, and we're going to... I'm going to show Darren here. This is radio, so you're not going to be able to see it. But Just talk me through it here. So we've got what looks like a clamshell kind of two different yeah. sides here. Yeah, we have a top and a bottom. We'll look at the bottom right now. So this is uh, it's made out of plastic, like a palm material or something like that. Oh, nice. Okay. And the bottom is machined out to fit an LGA 1150 processor. Okay, so that's kind of important, I think, that the delitting tool is processor-specific. It is processor, and it's made to accept just that processor. And it locks it in place, so it doesn't really move much. Nice. They were nice enough to put uh, rounded corners on here so that the chip doesn't have uh, corner damage. And also marked the bottom with a little arrow. Oh, to match the processor. Clever. Yeah. So that way, when you put it on here... Oh, and it's also hogged out in the bottom to uh, clear all of the uh, resistors that are on the back of the of the CPU. Very nicely built, too. Oh, it's very clean. <laughs> very clean. And you see there's three little screw holes around the outside. Now, the top, this is where all the action happens. It's basically a hogged-out section, which is the same size as the processor. And then there's this metal pusher, and this is made out of aluminum. And it sits in here, and there's a screw on the back that holds it in place. Okay, I see that. You'll notice that the pusher will run into a a spot. Oh, so it can only go so far. So it can only go so far. That's really key. And there's a little lip right here that that fits the edge of the the processor. Okay. Locks into place. So what you do, you put your processor in here, mark it with the arrow, mm-hmm. and then you put the top on. So you run this little Allen head screw out all the way, and you put your processor in there, and then you clamshell them together. Right. Use your fingers to kind of line them up. And maybe one of the, the one critique I would have of this design is that there's no self-locking, like no, oh, yeah, no like, guidance holes. Okay, yeah, d- alignment holes maybe is even a better way of thinking of it but i gotcha but you line it up that way and then you take these handy little thumb nuts run it down through the top sure lock it down and lock it down then when you get all that done do this real quick just so it's together so it does kind of look like black aluminum in a pass Mm -hmm. a little bit 
Nice. I can see they kept the cost down, which is good also. Yeah. Now, they included an Allen key that runs into the back here. Okay. Well, it gives you a little more control. And you basically spin that down. And then when it hits the processor, it basically takes like two turns. And then you hear this loud snap. Oh, danger. It's really, really loud. And this is, um, this product was a Kickstarter. Oh, that's cool. They had a video on the deleting is to kind of try to sell it. And for the first part of the video, all you heard was these, you see somebody moving this wrench and then you hear this loud crack. And that's basically the top coming off of the CPU. Man, I'd wet my pants. I think if I had a spendy processor snap at me. Yeah. Well, and I did, it did me the first time. It's like, hear this crack. I'm like, is that it? <laughs> so when you're done, you basically unscrew this and uh, pull it apart. And then when you get this apart, you can lift the lid off the, the top. Nice. Put your finger on here and it'll hold the PCB down. And then at that point, the CPU can just stay in here, the actual CPU. And then the lid at that point, take this little cuticle remover and then remove all the glue, remove all the glue from the CPU. And then for an extra, I think it was like 5 or $6, you can get the relitting tool. Relitting. Okay, I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> so what this is, is uh, it's this guide. It's a little white guide and it fits over the bottom and snaps over on top of the CPU. It holds it in place. Okay. These little fingers here will self-center the the heat spreader. Again, that's clever. These yeah. guys really thought it through. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, the little arrow in the corner. If you put that on the bottom, when you put the lid on top, you can see the writing and the writing is in the correct orientation. So put this on here and then you apply your glue to the, to the heat spreader. So how do you know what glue to use? Did it come with some? No, it didn't really come with any. Um, and everybody has a different opinion. Oh, so this is kind of like, you know, the gels and stuff. It could be. Yeah. Some people use just regular, um, you know, like crazy glue. Mm -hmm. And that works. I don't really like it so much just because it's really brittle. Personally, I've used black high temperature RTV before. It's silicone based, so you can use it basically once. Once you remove it, then it kind of gets slick and then it's hard to glue other stuff. So when you're done, you put this on here and then... Um, Put the lid on, and then there's this little tool. It's got, it looks like a little triangle. Mm -hmm. You put that on top, and those little fingers on the triangle match up to the holes. Sure, everything lines up. It clamps it all together, and you just run this down. Run this down real quick here. Do, do, do. Yeah. So run that down, and when that's down, then you take the center screw and crank that down until it hits the top of the processor and give it a nice little, eh, little turn to lock it in place. That will go and spread out the glue, put, apply even pressure to the heat spreader. The way that the bottom is machined, it's not going to bend the chip at all. So you can apply as much or as little pressure as you want. Leave it that way until the glue sets up and then tear it apart. And you no can use one it. knows that you were a super clocker. Yeah. How crazy. Wow. Okay. The Rocket 88 guys, man, they really have put together kind of an amazing product here. Yeah. And of course, there's always a bit of um, overclocker grease, if you will. So the thermal paste that you put on to replace that crackly Tim that Intel uses, you know, you can use um, you know, Arctic silver. People don't recommend that. There's a gillid, then there's some liquid metal, and everybody has a different opinion on mm -hmm. what works. And it kind of depends on whether or not you want to use your CPU for like LN2 cooling or if you're just looking for the best air cool temperatures. So if you're starting to glaze out there, the end result, I think, is that you want direct access to the top of the processor, right? 
Yeah, the whole reason to pull the top off is so that you can get access to the chip itself. You can replace the thermal compound that um, is between the heat spreader and the chip itself. Intel, or not Intel, but Asus supplied at one point a bracket that would hold the chip in place to replace the heat spreader so you have direct die um, access. But that's a bit dangerous and you need to use an LN2 pot for that. So you need to put the lid back on, obviously. Otherwise, you can't install the processor and it makes it a bit um, in danger of cracking the corners like what we did back in the Athlon XP Yeah, days. that's no good. All right, so now you did all this excitement on a 7700K. Yep, Cabby Lake. Cabby Lake. So uh, you, uh, you should talk a little bit about that. And I know that you've got an article that, that may be out by the time that this uh, podcast comes out that actually gives us the results. But give us a teaser. What were you expecting to get out of this? Well, it depends on what publication you subscribe to. <laughs> there you go. Um, some of them were claiming a 30 degree centigrade temperature difference between uh-huh. a non-delitted chip and a delitted chip. That's impressive. Now, some of that is, you know, the the mass production of chips. Well, there's always minute tolerances between... Oh, yeah, like binning. Yeah, like binning. So you have some chips that are extremely hot all the time, and you have some chips that aren't. And it also depends on, like, what heat sink you use and stuff like that. So well, Of course. I used uh, a high-end AOI water cooler, and I was getting, like, 50 to 60 C under load at stock speeds. When I delitted the chip... It was down 10 degrees, and it was down 10 degrees across the board. So at 4.5, it was 10 degrees less. At 5 gigahertz, it was 10 degrees less. At 5.2 gigahertz, it was 10 degrees less. Wow, consistency. Even at 5.3, I was able to run on that AIO water cooler with stock voltage and still remain less than 80 degrees, 80 degrees centigrade under load. Well, that sounds pretty good. I don't know, 10% is uh, maybe a little bit much for such extreme behavior but the tool it does it makes it look easy yeah and you know i might have gotten lucky with my chip to where you know i was able to run 5.2 without crazy temperatures even without delitting so i'm pretty sure that i just got a really good chip whereas some people don't and that's where this delitting process can really help the long-term temperature variances of your systems all right so bottom line at the rocket 88 delitting tool who should buy it Everybody should buy it. Everybody. However, it seems a bit much. It, it seems a bit much. Um, anybody that is interested in overclocking obviously will want to delid their chip just to say they delitted it. Some of the warnings are obviously you don't have a warranty if you delid your chip. But if you're overclocking, you technically don't have a warranty either. That's true. People that are running like, uh, you know, an enthusiast air cooled or water cooled system will enjoy better temperatures by deleting their chip. 10 degrees, 30 degrees, depends on, you know, your chip quality. It will just make your system a little bit more stable. It will crank your fans down because it's not going to see such a high core temperature and ramp up your PWM fans. So it'll make it quieter. Well, it sounds like if you are a Cabby Lake enthusiast and you haven't tried deletting, it's just one more tool to add to your toolbox. So I, I definitely suggest you check out the Rocket 88 deletting tool. When I got back from CES this January, something was rattling around in my head that there was two trends. Two trends. Two trends in the PC hardware market. Virtual reality and 4K TVs. Yeah, that would be nice. 
But no, that's not it. <laughs> no, we're talking about RGB LEDs. Oh, of course. And tempered glass. Oh, yeah, I see that. I see that. Yeah, so pretty much every manufacturer that made cases had an option of that case on display that had tempered glass. And if it wasn't on the case, it was an option that you could buy later. Thermaltake, for instance, even had a retrofit side panel that goes on the Core V51, the case that we modified. Nice. That was tempered glass that replaces the stock panel. I don't see that as such a bad thing. And and you're kind of painting these, well, pairing with RGB. Uh, yeah, but I like tempered glass. Well, and I do too. And when Inwin first brought it out with some of their like D-frame cases, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And now everybody is on board with making tempered glass side panels for their cases. I think it's a great thing, but you know, it's almost too much of a great thing to the point where, you know, you have these cases that really don't deserve a tempered glass side panel that that are getting them. I definitely agree with because you're adding additional cost to some cases where that's their only feature, really. And weight. Oh gosh, yeah. It depends on how thick the panel is, you know. I figure if you're going to go tempered glass, you need to at least use the four to six millimeter stuff, you know, the heavy glass. Yeah, keep it safe. And a lot of these manufacturers are actually doing like two and three millimeter thick glass panels, which are pretty thin. They're light. This saves on weight, saves on cost, but it makes it seem cheap. Well, that's because cases are big and expensive to ship. And I see that. And in fact, I think there's a place for it because I'm really enjoying some of these glass sided display PCs. Yes. And I know Thermaltake makes a really great case, and the name escapes me at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea of having all your components exposed, especially if you take the time like we have to put you know, custom lighting and a really nice water cooling system together. Right. And that brings up the second thing I noticed, which was RGB lighting. Oh, my gosh. Everything has RGB lighting. And, you know, motherboards all have RGB headers. Some of them have RGBs on board. Some of them are default on, which really is, they shouldn't be. Um, well, it's ridiculous. And I kind of mentioned this in my recent headphone review when I did the Cloud Stinger, which is really a fantastic entry-level gaming headset. So mm-hmm. go check out that review on the site. And we'll link to that, of course, in the show notes. But one of the things I noticed is in that lower-level price point, a lot of manufacturers make up for quality mm-hmm. by throwing some fancy lights on headphones of all things. And I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, and this is the way the PC industry has been, though. I mean, I can go back 10 years, for instance, at a Computex, where all the cases I saw were these really thin metal pre-mods, what I called them back then, where they had a side window cut out and then a blowhole on the top. And it was all the stuff that modders were doing to actual good cases right. to make them better. And now they're doing it, they're cheapening it by trying to do this, you know, extremely cheap. And that brings me to an article that you sent me via Facebook Messenger, I believe, from PC Gamer. Yeah, so PC Gamer is kind of a a guilty pleasure for me. Um, They're very mainstream, but they are pretty good at getting the pulse of what's popular out there, both in in gaming and, and hardware, at a nice, easy to digest, I guess, newsworthy clickbait sort of article. So I don't begrudge him that, but... Yeah, so Tuan wrote an article titled, Gaming Hardware Needs to Grow Up. (laughs) Yeah. And then his little subtitle is, These Days, You're Not a Gamer If You Don't Have RGB Everything You Have. Oh, and I can tell you, it just drips with sarcasm, doesn't it? Well, and this article really hits home in what we saw at CES, where we have, for instance, he uh, talks about a gaming headphone holder, which, you know, it. the picture he has here is a nice curved edge at the top where your headrest 
goes for your headphones and it's lifted off the ground. Yeah, nice simple headphone stand. And and I have a headphone stand and it was kind of one of those things I drug feet about. Mm-hmm. But I like it. But yeah. I, you know, it's not. It's not gaming, obviously, it's because not gaming. He has a picture of a gaming headphone stand, oh, which good is heavens. made completely out of plastic. There's no arch piece at the top to hold the headphones, and so now you're going to have little dimples in your memory foam, and it looks like it's really weak and it's going to fall over. But it's so uh, gaming because yeah. it's bright colored and gaudy and in your face. Yeah, which kind of brings up an interesting point about how companies try to reinvent and rebuild products so that they can add to their product line. You know, right. like esports, for instance, is going after the the you know, gaming keyboards, gaming mice. Well, we've had really good keyboards before. We've had really good mice before. Oh, yeah. And so all of these things have been invented, and we have, like, the perfect version of it somewhere. But then somebody needs to add it to their product line, and they have to reinvent it. And this is the crap that you get. And that's sad, too, because I I have to admit I'm kind of a bit of a lighting guy. I like lights. (laughs) But it's getting kind of ridiculous. I mean, just... This week, I saw a gaming table. So I'm not going to smear the brand, but uh, it was out on Fry's, and it's also being offered through Mastrop, which tends to be a pretty good site where the cream rises to the top. Mm -hmm. Apparently, that's not always true. And I don't know, maybe there's a demand for this thing, Dennis, but what we're talking about is a table that, to me, just looks like a standard lunchroom table maybe mm-hmm. but the top is contoured and the surface dennis the surface is one giant mouse pad okay but no shelves no keyboard trays nothing but you can and this is this is the gaming part okay you can get it so that it's blue or red Ooh, so we're talking can... the legs everything the mouse pad surface is removable mm-hmm. so you can clean it <laughs> Which, and, if you've ever tried to clean a cloth mouse pad, that's a frutal Yeah, effort. if you can't wipe it down, you're screwed. Life yeah. goes on. Mm-hmm. You know, that means, of course, you can buy another one. So, all right, there's some money in that. I get that. But this single surface table, and Dennis, I buy tables all the time, and I recommend tables to friends and folks. But this is a $400 MSRP table with... Not even a shelf for your PC. Holy shit! <laughs> but it is a but it is a gaming table, and I, I apologize for my language, but it is honestly ridiculous. And apparently, there's a demand for this thing. Well, you know, to me, all I need in a good table is enough real estate where everything fits, mm-hmm. and uh, enough shelving that everything fits without looking ridiculously overstuffed. And I'm good to go. I admit I'm a little partial to aluminum and glass, but only because it looks better and cleaner in the in the room not because it has any additional gaming functionality yeah well uh speaking of functionality uh, something else that tuan goes into in this article is like motherboards this is something that i i know a lot about right and it has a picture of an asus motherboard here it's a gaming one it's got something that asus msi and gigabyte all did at compute at not computex but ces where the VRM heatsinks were blended in with like an IO shield, and it made it look like one cohesive unit. Okay, well, it's clean at least. It's clean. It looks great. It has great curb appeal, which is something we talked about in a previous podcast. Well, it goes great with that tempered glass side panel, right? Yep. But according to Tuan, he asked them, so does this heatsink work any better? A couple of them actually came back and honestly said no. They 
these heat sinks are terrible. And I can agree with that because some of them have heat pipes that go down to an effective heat sink, which is on the South Bridge. <laughs> right. But I also know that under normal use, you don't have to have a heat sink on your VRM. They're efficient enough that they don't get hot enough to require cooling. So they look nice, but somebody's got to pay for all that, right? Right. I mean, that's just, you know, added cost. Gamers. I'm starting to think gamer is a tax on hardware, right? Yeah, I think pay so. Pay the gamer tax. Yeah, so, and later in the same article, he shows a server board that has these two aluminum heat sinks on there. Oh, I remember those. And these are like the ultra-efficient heat sink. You know, they have thin pins, very thin metal, quick heat dissipation. Yeah, for the servers, you got to have them. Well, and there's not a lot of room, obviously. And then he goes and talks about keyboards, which he shows two keyboards, one of them black, one of them kind of black with LEDs and fancy graphics and... Guess which one is the gamer one? Oh, yeah, because it's got all kinds of bright eye-catching... Oh, what the heck is that? <laughs> yeah, well, this one has like a, a little dock where you can put a little gaming tablet so you can have access to some of your in-game effects. All right, well, I'm kind of guilty of that, too. I used the old Logitech G15 that had the screen on it, but mm-hmm. it was useful because it provided... Well, and maybe that one is too, provided information on heat and and that sort of stuff too, yeah. that you didn't, in those days, you didn't have access to elsewhere, especially if you were in game. Yeah, well, and there was um, a whole segment of gaming that neither Darren and I play, which is like, you know, League of Legends and those real-time strategy top-down kind of games. I don't play too many of those. Uh-huh. Where, you know, like the MOBAs, I guess, you have all these different macros that do different things, like oh, yeah. spells, and you map it to a key, and that's why macros are so important. Yeah, how to work on your macro. So these little displays will allow you to toggle between and see which one you're on, so you know which ones you're pressing and stuff. And I can understand why you'd want to have that, but you shouldn't have an actual keyboard for that, one with like, you know, QWERTY keys. You mm-hmm. should just have a keypad that has your buttons that can be meshed in. Well, you know, Dennis, I've done a lot of keyboard reviews in my time. And what I find is regardless of how they perform in the review, nine times out of 10, when I actually settle into using the keyboard, I'm only using the, just the first few keys that I can reach just to the left and top of my core WASD. Yeah. So maybe four or six keys max. I, I can see why you'd want to have a keyboard when you're gaming on the PC. That's Mm -hmm. just the way that it should be. But it's really just replacing what you would normally do on a console where you hit like X, Y, and then that does a certain key combination. So it's kind of the same thing. We just need to, if you're going to make a gaming keyboard, it doesn't need to have QWERTY keys on. It doesn't have to have anything. You do little symbols or something. Yeah. Well, that takes us kind of back to the Nostromos and those, uh, you know, dedicated grip keyboards that I'm surprised haven't taken off a little bit more because you can program that thing. It's ergometrically correct, and it's going to work as a single-hand controller, which is really what you're doing when you're in a game. The weakness of the keyboard is always the shape is designed for typing and efficiency and not for reach, and that's where those specific gaming peripherals really exist. But if you look at the pros, there just isn't a lot of market penetration. They're not using it because you spend your whole life learning to touch type, and you don't want to relearn a new device. But that's the same argument that keeps us really from being effective with those macro keys. You just have to teach yourself, and most people don't. I want to say that that's the crux of the whole gaming thing. Something that I I put in my little response when I posted this article from PC Gamer, and I think I'll just read the bottom here. Yeah, go. We, at hard, we as hardware enthusiasts need to spread the word that having a custom PC is cool again, which I believe is true. 
I will be the first to admit that I think current direction is counterproductive, but will say that the Asian market engine is fierce. And I mean by a single region that is able to sway 90% of the hardware makers to do something and to do something together. And that's, of course, telling you something. Yeah. And in this case, the China market is telling hardware manufacturers, we like RGB. So everybody adds RGB. And all of a sudden, everything is going to sell there. I want to say that in the U.S., we think that that's silly. You know, you look at EVGA, for instance, you can buy every motherboard that they have. It has no RGB lights on it at all. But EVGA doesn't sell in China. So the U.S. market is still, you know, looking at the, the realistic factor of it and wants high quality hardware. And we're kind of riding what I call the third world hardware emergence. So I'm not sure how long that's going to last, but kind of at a whim of whatever the Asia market decides. Well, that makes sense, though, because that's where the emerging market is bringing the rise of esports to. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, it's not any different than any other professional sport. You look at what the pros are doing and what the pros are using, and they must have something right because they're making a nice living at it. And a lot of that is coming from that Asian market. So if they're using all these RGBs and these fancy keyboards and light-up headphones and stuff, I have to say I can see the appeal, especially if you have the budget or the desire to go that direction. It's not like the manufacturers are going to create two versions of it either. You know, Asus tried to do that when they had their completely gold motherboards for that one year. Oh, yeah. Those were cool, though. They were cool, but they, blingy. none of them sold in the U.S. And after that, they stopped doing gold on any of their motherboards. So Yeah, sometimes you just can't justify it. And really, the root of it is that you don't have to have the RGB turned on. No, you can turn it off in the BIOS or in the software. At least on any product where it's salt, you can. Although every gigabyte board that I've gotten that's had RGB lights, it's been on by default. And it was red by default. Oh, well, matches the marketing. Matches that. And it's if you have it off by default, the people that want to buy that are looking for it. They're not going to know how to turn it on either. So <laughs> How funny. Well, it's an interesting world we live in. And I'm afraid, Dennis, that RGB, at least in the short run, is here to stay. And I am honestly envisioning a time when my PC setup lights up like an airplane cockpit. But, you know, to some extent, I like it. I like the ability to look at my mouse and know what profile it's in by what color it's in. Mm -hmm. I really like when my LEDs respond to music when I'm listening to music because that brings to mind a high-end home theater system. And I kind of like ground lighting. Not enough to put it on a car or something ridiculous, but um, it's not so bad when it's not in your face and now I'm starting to sound like that guy. So maybe I am the target market for RGB after all. Well, you might be. And... On the converse, you know, I look at some of the motherboards I've reviewed, where they put the RGB lights, they get covered by all the hardware you install. So it becomes more of an accent lighting. And if you don't do the rest of your system in such a way, you're going to block all of those lights. So it's more, they put it there to put it there, not because it's going to be viewed by anybody. And that's the danger, really. You know, when we were modifying cases back in the day, it would be like the LED or not LED, but the neon light or the cold cathode tube. Oh, yeah. And the challenge was how to put that tube in the case and hide it such that we were illuminating the chassis but not seeing the light. You know, now with the RGB LED strips, we have a little bit more control over that. We can put them wherever we want. So there's good and the bad, and then there's the why did you do it? I agree. Well, I think in the long run that we may see a convergence where the LED lighting 
has a form as well as a function and it's going to provide that data that we need or at least we'll have the option to or you can just make it pulse along with whatever you're doing but either way uh, I think what I've learned is that RGB is here to stay whether we get oversaturated well we'll save that for another topic For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on HardwareAsylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2017. Thanks for listening.